I'm Dean Jackson. He's Joe Polish. And this is the I Love Marketing Podcast. It's Dean Jackson and Joe Polish, and uh, here we are. Um, by the time you're going to hear this are. one, it will be a new year, and so we want to welcome everyone to the new year. And if you happen to listen to this episode many decades from now, pretend it's a new year. Um, but uh, happy new year! Yeah, yeah, it's going to be awesome. So we, we we got a we got a great guest today who I've really been looking mm-hmm. forward no time to. Time to waste today. Yeah, we're going to get into it. His name is uh, Ryan Holiday, and uh, Ryan is on on the line with us right now. We're all in different parts of the world. You're in Austin, Texas, right now, Ryan. Is that where you're at? Correct. Yeah, and uh, Dean's in Florida. I'm in Arizona. So I'm I'm going to read a real quick uh, bio of uh, Ryan, and this is the only part of this I'm going to read anything. So uh, Ryan Holiday is a leading media strategist whose campaigns have been studied by uh, YouTube, Twitter, and Google, uh, and covered in Fast Company, Ad Age, and Gawker. Uh, Ryan is the director of marketing at American Apparel and the author of Trust Me, I'm Lying, an insider's uh, look written in the great tradition of American whistleblowers about who really sets the media agenda. Ryan Holiday works for notorious clients like Tucker Max and uh, Dove uh, Charney of American Apparel after dropping out of college at the ripe age of 19 years old to apprentice under the strategist Robert Greene, uh, who wrote the book 48 Laws of Power and a bunch of other great books. Uh, he went on to advise many best-selling authors and multi-platinum musicians. His new book, Growth Hacker Marketing, a primer on the future of PR, marketing, and advertising, explains the growth hacker mindset and overnight successes of companies like Dropbox, Facebook, Airbnb and Twitter. Uh, I've read uh, cover to cover both of Ryan's books. Highly, highly endorse and recommend them. You will learn a ton of shit by reading these books. Uh, Growth Hacker Marketing is fantastic. I've actually referred it to, to several people that run $50, $100 million plus companies who have read it and have sent me text messages and saying, saying that book is great. So all of our I Love Marketing mm-hmm. listeners, uh, I think you'll get a lot from this, but I'm just right off the bat before he says anything, get his day books because they're killer. In, even if he, if Ryan doesn't say anything useful during this episode, which he will, uh, the books alone, uh, I think will change everything about how you think about the media, about marketing, about PR, about everything. So um, thanks for uh, for taking the time, Ryan. Great to have you uh, on with us. And uh, for what I didn't say, who the heck is really Ryan Holiday? What, what's your deal? Uh, well, I, I have to say I'm not as awesome as that introduction, or at least that's going to be something now I have to live up to on the course of this uh, this podcast. So that's going to be uh, that's going to be tough. Well, we got Dean here, so that's not it's not going to be tough. I mean, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so so I'm I'm sort of someone uh, who who got started in marketing accidentally and was sort of thrown into to the the deep deep end and and kind of had to figure out how this stuff worked for. For a, a breed of, of clients that were, you know, sort of controversial or atypical, to, to put it nicely, and we ended up sort of pioneering what what is, you know, our sort of our own unique way of, of marketing and sales that that you know sold millions of dollars worth of products that that I think uh, people can learn from, and I, I think are also emblematic of a of a new way of thinking about marketing. You know, American Apparel is a Close to a billion dollar company that, that does sort of very little traditional advertising that, that, that built its brand 
it, you know, it's, it's a company that, that was created, you know, 10, 15 years ago that, that sort of built this, this new way of getting attention that, 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 that it has to do because it makes its clothes in the U.S. You know, uh, Tucker Max, who's my first author client, was one of the first authors to turn a blog into a book, into a bestseller. It got turned into a movie. It sold millions of copies. So I think, you know, if I have to answer the question who I am, it's, it's someone who, who didn't have any traditional training in marketing, but really by trial and error sort of figured out some of the, the fundamental truths of marketing. And, and then that's what my books are about. Yeah. And you, you know, your, your growth hacker marketing not only describes a great mindset and about marketing and, and it's, I read it on, on a Kindle. So, uh, you know, I don't have the physical copy here where I can just kind of go through the, all the highlights and stuff easily. So we'll just do this off the top of my head, but bef- before, well, it's actually, it's only an ebook yeah. that, that was, uh, it's, we sort of, we tried to growth hack, hack that book itself, which is, you know, you start small. Uh, you don't have to do all the traditional publishing stuff. You can just start with an idea and see if it works. And, and I will say it's a very short book. And so it's only yeah, like it's, a few bucks on Amazon. I think it's like the time I bought it was like $2.99. Is that where it's going to stay? Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there, there you go. Big investment. Um, but that's more expensive than I love marketing, which is like free. So, um, <laughs> but Dean. Dean, what do you have to say for yourself? Because I've got a ton of questions for Ryan, and but I don't want to be a bulldozer here. So, you know, I want to give you an opportunity. Well, this whole thing, I mean, you know, I love this whole growth hacker approach because it's so in alignment with a lot of the strategies that we teach without having called them growth hacking. But it's you know, essentially things like the nine word email and the 90 minute book are, are, um, those are growth hacks. Those are things that are, are very easy. Ryan, one of the things we talk about that's a really successful, um, strategy is something we call the, the nine word email that revives dead leads. And it was just a simple hack that was designed to, you know, any, any business can use this like a magic trick. If they've got leads or inquiries or people who have opted in, they haven't bought in, you know, they've been on their list for more than 90 days. They can send just a quick email to them. Uh, and I did it with real estate agents sending to their clients saying, um, Hey Ryan, are you still looking for a house in Georgetown? That's it. Just the nine words. Right. And that's so, so simple. And we've had, um, so many different examples of this. We had a guy who sent it to his yacht prospects and generated a hundred million dollar yacht buyer with, are you still looking for a yacht? And, you know, I was very interested to read in your book about, and I'd forgotten about hotmail about their strategy, but that essentially was driven by a nine word PS that Mm -hmm. said, PS, I love you. Get your free email at hotmail.com. Totally. And that just happens to be nine words. It is just something that was just so, so simple that all of these things kind of really resonate with me, you know, and I think it'll really resonate with all of our readers. That's just finding out what's the, what's the objective, who are you talking to and, and what's the, uh, what's the bottom line, real objective that you have, you know? Yeah, no, I think, I think what's funny too, is that we've, you know, because people who are not in advertising get so caught up in, in the, the show and the symbolism, they, they tend to think that marketing and advertising is like what you see in Mad Men. 
and that's part of it, but it's it's also to justify having uh, an an advertising firm and an office on Madison Avenue where you charge your clients, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, you have to make it look harder and more complicated and, and more artistic than it really is. And I, what I like about that nine word email concept is it, it's so simple, but it actually works. So why don't you just do that instead of creating some Super Bowl advertisement or putting in a, you know, spending $250,000 to run a television commercial or a, a billboard on the, by the side of the highway when you've got an email list that you're not fully taking advantage of. And, and I think that's what growth hackers have figured out because they didn't have $250,000 to spend on a billboard. Well, let me, yes, let me ask yes, you this yes. is the most basic level then just cause we're talking about it right now. Uh, like what is growth hacking? You know, who is a growth hacker and you know, how does growth hacking work? I mean, like, like let's just break it down of what do you actually mean when you, when you say that you, you titled your book over it. So sure. elaborate on it. Yeah. So, so growth hacking is something that, that I don't, uh, presume any sort of deep understanding or ownership of it's a, it's a, it's a word that came to describe a certain brand of Silicon Valley tech startup, uh, sort of marketer programmer hybrid. And, you know, I, I was, I, my background was in traditional marketing in the sense that I worked at American apparel. I was the director of marketing. And I, I read this article one day by, by a, an essayist who I respect. His name is Andrew Chen. And his premise was, you know, growth hackers are the new VPs of marketing. And his, his argument was like, if you look at Facebook, if you look at Twitter, if you look at Airbnb and you look at these startups that didn't exist five years ago and now are billion dollar companies, they didn't even have marketing departments. They built these massively viral, hugely po- uh, profitable, uh, hugely you know uh, popular websites without doing an advertising budget, without doing, um, w- without throwing parties, without doing that kind of stuff. What they did was they they sort of focused. Not, it's not just on direct marketing techniques, because I think it's more complicated than that. But they focused on things that are trackable and scalable and testable um, that that didn't require massive investments up front. Because we have to remember Facebook and Twitter, although they're big companies now, you know, they, they started with zero and they started with zero budgets. And they had to build their company uh, from like sort of one dollar, one customer at a time. And so growth hacking is that approach. It's the mindset of, okay, we're starting a website tomorrow. How do we get our first thousand users on day one? How do we have 2000 users on day two? How do we have 4000 users on, on day three? And how do, how do we build it exponentially from there? And so growth hacking is that approach to marketing. It's, it's Palo Alto and Silicon Valley rather than Manhattan and Madison Avenue. Yep. Got it. Great. And you said, you said three really important words too, you know, doing things that are trackable, scalable and testable, which is very much what, uh, you know, we want to do with direct response. And before our conversation, I, you know, I'd said to you, like, how the heck did you learn this stuff, you know, early on, you know, at a very young age? Um, and you, you made some comments about, um, direct response. And I, instead of repeating what you said, uh, and not saying it exactly the same way, I'd like to just pose that to you now that we're actually recording this, this episode and kind of go back to that. What did you, what, what are your thoughts on direct response and where did it fit into your life and how'd you get introduced to it? Cause you certainly, you know, are a very savvy marketer. 
Sure. What I think happens is people who have no traditional training in marketing, so they didn't go to school, they didn't learn what a press release was, they didn't learn how to do this or that, they're, they're just sort of thrown in the deep end. They got to experiment and figure out what works. Like what brings customers through the door and put asses in the seats, you know? Um, and, and what you end up doing if you don't have the, the freedom or the liberty of millions of dollars to spend is you sort of, you, you fall to these direct marketing techniques because they're what's, they're what works. When the idea of, of doing something and not testing to see whether it works or not is insane. The only reason you wouldn't do that is if you were just taking it on faith that television commercials were a great idea or that printing t-shirts with your name on it were a good idea. Like when you're starting from scratch, you've got to learn all this stuff and you end up, you know, you end up experimenting, you end up trying things, you end up, you know, Googling around and, and watching videos and, and just, taking ideas from people and emulating and reverse engineering what you think is effective. And then you, you look at the results and you go, okay, look, when I, when I ran radio commercials, I'm not sure if sales went up or not, but when I put out this mailer, I know that I got 200 customers from it. And you end up repeating that thing over and over again until it stops working because you know that it actually is working. Right. Right. So, for people that um, you know have no experience or understanding of marketing, I mean, how would you even define what marketing is? Like, what what would be your definition of it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't think it's it's that super crucial to to belabor definitions, but I would say marketing is what grows the business. Marketing is what brings uh-huh. in customers and grows the business. Um, and, and I think, you know, that might be part of the problem is that people have, people have said, oh, marketing is X, Y, and Z. And so they think like, if you're doing that, then you're being an effective marketer. Like if you're wooing like media reporters, that's marketing and publicity, right? But you're not actually questioning whether being in the New York Times tomorrow is what your business actually needs and whether it will actually grow and enhance your business. So I think a real simple, straightforward definition of marketing as it brings in new leads who become customers, you're going to, you're going to limit the amount of waste and inefficiency. Yep. I love the fact that because it's so, you know, you use other words like guerrilla marketing or whatever, but the, you know, at its essence, it's really about understanding what your, who your clients are and what they really want totally. and then doing everything you can to give that, give it to them. You know, I mean, I loved the fact that everything in, uh, in growth hacking, everything in the book is about, uh, really putting the clients first, you know, giving them what they want and making that the marketing, you know? Right. No. And I think, I think that's what's so refreshing about how these startups have, have worked. Like, look, for the first several years of its existence, Facebook didn't have a marketing team. They had a growth team because they didn't want there to be any confusion about what these people's job was. Your job isn't to like, you know, market. Your job is to get new users to sign up. 
So let's be very clear mm-hmm. about that. And let's be very clear about our priorities. And, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that and they get caught up in, it's like, hey, I'm launching a movie, so I must have a premiere party. They don't actually think about whether that's going to make people see the movie or not, right? Because they just, mm-hmm. they, it, in their head, movies and movie premieres are synonymous with each other and therefore you must do it. You know, that, that's that. a really... That's a really good insight, just even what you said there about not having a, a marketing team but calling it a growth team just to not confuse everybody because I cannot tell you how many people, and I'm sure you would say the same thing, Ryan, is that you meet that have marketing titles. Like, you know, you're, you're director of uh, marketing for, um, you know, American Apparel, which is right. a, you know, a giant brand, um, and you're, you're a director of marketing that actually, you know, understands marketing inside and out. And I can't tell you how many people I've met that were VPs of marketing, directors of marketing that are complete and utter morons. I mean, they don't even understand what the term means. And they're, they're just, I mean, they're just doing nonsense that isn't trackable, that isn't scalable, that, that, that is never tested, that doesn't have calls to action, that doesn't have compelling copy. They don't know what an offer is. You know, they don't use, you know, emotional, you know, engagement, but they call themselves marketers. Right. And I think it is a term that really confuses people that don't get it. Yeah, and, and I think that's why growth hacking is, has come around because it's like, look, if you started this company and you've got, you're funding it with $10,000 or $20,000, uh, because that's what you raised on Kickstarter, that's what you got from Y Combinator, from some, you know, angel investor, you don't have the liberty of hiring some fancy VP of marketing at, you know, $150,000 a year who, who's actually totally clueless and is just gonna, you know, like, uh, pull the wool over your eyes until you realize that they don't do anything. Like you've got to grow yesterday. And so I think, and I think that's what you guys is like with, with the kind of people that you speak to and the customers you, you deal with. It's like, look, we don't have time for, for blowing smoke. Like we got to grow or we die. And, and that to me is what builds and generates really creative, innovative marketing techniques because it's, it's born out of necessity. One of my favorites of those is, you know, you talk a lot about knowing your customers, knowing how to reach them, knowing where they are, uh, is, goes so far. One of my favorite stories about that is when Snapple launched their mango flavor, they contracted with the Mango Growers Association to put stickers on 10 million mangoes that said now available in Snapple. Oh, that's great. Which like, you know how on bananas they have the yeah. little stickers or whatever? I mean, could you imagine, like, you know, because a mango is like an acquired taste. And who better than somebody who actually likes mangoes to buy mango-flavored Snapple? Right. No, and, and that I would totally classify that as a growth hacking technique. It's like, look. Absolutely. In, instead of trying to bring people to us, let's go find where our people but are. Where they are, Exactly. And, and try to come up with something that no one has done before that's innovative. That's and, and by the way, because no one had done it before, I'm sure they got a great rate on it. Whoever comes, whoever came next and wanted to put stickers on their mangoes probably yeah. paid a huge premium, right? But because Snapple came up with the idea, it probably cost, you know, a fraction of what, you know, a series of television commercials would have cost or, or some other yeah. more tried and true tactic. Yeah. And not many, uh, not many ad agencies, traditional ad agencies really think that way. 
you know, my favorite of those is Crispin Porter Bogusky, the guys who do all the yeah. um, advertising for Burger King and, and the mini and all these things. But I mean, there, there are things of thinking outside of the box, you know, like getting, bringing back the Burger King in that kind of surreal kind of uh, way. And then, sending him on dates with Brooke Burke, you know, so he's yeah. photographed in, in people magazine or all these, you know, all the tabloids with, uh, court seed court side seats to the Lakers with Brooke Burke. And then he's out on the beach, you know, rubbing oil on her back. And the, you know, all these things are is Brooke Burke dating the Burger King. You know, like all those kind of things are just kind of, phenomenal, you know, crazy ideas that, that reach the right audience. Well, and, and that's something that I talk about in my first book, the, uh, which is about media manipulation is I think people, mm. I think people don't understand how desperate reporters and journalists and, and media outlets are to just chatter about anything. And so, mm-hmm. so when, when Crispin Porter does crazy stuff with the Burger King, they get all sorts of free publicity and press out of it. Meanwhile, right. some some other brand, Wendy's, is continuing to do the same boring crap that they've always done, and they wonder why People Magazine isn't talking about their mascot. It's like, because your mascot's yeah. not doing anything, you're not taking any risks, you're not taking any chances. Um, right. And, They're not and making so them real. Right. Yeah, so I think growth hacking goes along with that in the sense that it's, it's about thinking and trying things that other people haven't done and then doing that yeah. until diminishing returns set in and then trying something else new and repeating that process indefinitely. Um, well, and that's what all exciting well, companies have done. I think one of the things that, that Crispin Porter Bogusky did before they allow their uh, team, their creative teams to come up with or pitch TV or radio um, or print ideas, which are the, the standbys, you know, immediately let's yeah. just go and spend the budget on, on that. They have to come up with a hundred ideas that are not print TV or radio. Wow. And so no, that kind that. of thinking is where they came up with, I don't know if you remember years ago, they did the subservientchicken.com. Uh-huh where they had this guy in a chicken outfit in this, you know, CD apartment and you would go there and you'd type a line, type a command in the, uh, in the search bar and the chicken would do whatever you commanded. So you'd type in jump up and down and the chicken jumps up and down. And it looks like this guy is, is following your every command. But the truth is it was all just video loops that all start and end on a, a on a mark. Right. And it was all search engine search driven, you know, where people would do the thing. But the way that they drove it was they, they printed uh, a thousand flyers with a picture of the subservient chicken and 10 lines, 10 blank lines underneath and just went out on the streets and asked people what they would ask the chicken to do. And they compiled all of the results and they found that, you know, once you get past the, you know, sort of had a long tail, but the, the steep, you know, slope was, you know, jump up and down, you know, um, chase your tail or uh, do the chicken dance or, you know, all the things that were like the standard things that everybody could think of. There really wasn't much, 
after the long tail, after you got to the first, you know, 200 uh, answers. Right. Well, yeah, no, another one I like about that, too, is is uh, I talk about this a little bit in the Growth Hacking book, is Amazon, one of Amazon's policies is, as a company, if a project manager or an executive wants to roll out, like, a new initiative or a new project or a new service, they start by writing the press release first. Mm-hmm. Like, before you can pitch it, before you can get approval, you have to write it as a press release as though the product already exists. And it's not because press yeah. releases are important. It's because... If you can't describe it in a way that would make people say, wow, Amazon just announced blank, then you can't do it. And you have to go back to the drawing boards until you've figured out what that wow factor, exciting, announcement-worthy part of your idea is. Yeah. And you've leaned into it. Delivery. You, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, people far too often, they come out with something and then they're scrambling to figure out what makes it interesting. They're scrambling what will make people talk about it. And it's like, it's too late. And if growth hackers do anything well, it's building those things into the product. And you guys know this better than anyone. The best marketing decision you can make is just to have something awesome that people really like. And then yeah. all the other techniques are just about drawing attention to that fact rather than compensating for the lack of that. Yeah, you know what? That's a real, that's a real key thing too, which I think is becoming more, um, difficult to get away with selling mediocre stuff. I mean, one of the, the great yeah. things, you know, w- when me and Dean started this, there was no internet. I mean, we're doing, you know, offline marketing and advertising and tons of direct mail and building referral programs and, you know, space ads and TV and radio and all that stuff. And, you know, now it's a lot easier to get exposed for being shitty for having crappy mediocre stuff and uh, i like that and and because of that um there's you know it really causes people to step up their game i mean it's really rare uh you know these days that if i ever go to a restaurant i don't look on yelp i mean you know uh, if i ever go to a movie right. I, I have a little app uh, flickster you know things like that and i read uh lots of reviews um you know what what is what is your what is your advice for business owners void of just, you know, really useful marketing about just having their act together? I mean, how do you explain to someone how to create enormous, immense value for what it is you're selling? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, first off, I think, you know, for far too long, marketers have only felt like they were qualified to do like the external marketing. Like what I actually feel like, and I think this is what growth actors have innovated on is like, look, If you're a marketer and you understand what the people want and someone comes to you with a crappy product, tell them what they need to do and change on the product to make your job easier. Like, I I think this idea of like, oh, you can only go to market with the product you have is less relevant in in a world of apps and online services that can be much more easily changed. You know, it's not like you spent... 10 years in a factory perfecting this, you know, automobile, that's chances are that's not what most of us are selling. We're selling mm-hmm. informational products or services or, or ideas. And those are more, much more malleable. And so I think first off, a marketer has to step, step out further than just marketing and really improve and, uh, make 
the products better. And there's this idea that, that also originates from the Silicon Valley, which is this sort of idea of product market fit. So Instagram, which is a great service that, you know, millions of people use, it went from zero to a billion dollar company. It was acquired by Facebook in less than 18 months. But a lot of people don't know that it, it didn't start as a photo sharing app. It started as a, as a sort of a mobile check-in geo service, sort of like Foursquare, that you could also upload photos on. And what the users, what the owners found was that the users really only liked the photos and the filters. And so they, they rebranded the product. They got rid of all the extraneous stuff that nobody liked and they leaned just into the photo filters thing. And that's what made then. The day it launched as Instagram, it did something like 25,000 downloads. That's the power of product market fit. Instead of trying to force something, try something out and see how people respond. And, and you know, in the photo space, there's lots of great examples. Like people don't remember that Flickr, the photo sharing service that sold to Yahoo for like $25 million about, you know, eight or nine years ago, started out as like a video game. And so it, it's like, I want people to understand that their idea of what the product is should be flexible and receptive to real market feedback. And if the market is telling you strongly to change your idea or to tweak it or to emphasize different parts, you should listen because it will make your thing much more marketable and spread much faster and therefore be more successful. No, that, that's great. And, you know, I'd like you to describe product uh, market fit and also how you talk about building the marketing into, you know, the platform, which you go into detail and show, you know, many cases of, like Dean had talked about with, you know, Hotmail and Airbnb and, um, you know, Dropbox. Could you kind of cover those couple areas? Yeah, sh- sure. And, and I don't think any of these things are going to be surprising to direct marketing folks, but, but it's, I think it's worth saying again, you know, product market fit is when your audience and the product are in perfect alignment. When you make something that people have been after for a long time and you fulfill a real and compelling need. You know, that, again, that, the best marketing you can do is make something that's really awesome that people love talking about. Uh, because then I can recommend it and tell you about it. You know, um, if you, if you, you make something that's sort of like this bonus that nobody really cares, they're not going to press it in other people's hands. And so I think what you see is like solving a, a problem is a really compelling way to, to have product market fit. Um, and, and to really, I, and, and that means also thinking about who's going to make Who's going to be interested in this? And sometimes you've got to, you've got to go like, look, I'm not, uh, you can't just make products for yourself, I guess would be another way of putting it. And and far too many people do it. They make things just for them and their friends and they forget that maybe there's not that many people like them. And then you've got other people who are really good at seeing what groups of people want and creating a product just for them. So, so product market mm-hmm. fit is this thing that all startups are looking for and they're constantly tweaking and iterating and changing until they get there. Airbnb, which now you can rent everything from castles to lake houses to, to ski lodges, um, on started as a way for people who are traveling out of town to conferences could crash on people's floors. And it's called Airbnb because the, the host had to cook the guest breakfast. Um, but that's not a billion dollar idea. That's like an idea for like 10,000 people who live in San Francisco who are poor, you know, but, but they, 
Airbnb took the feedback and they, they improved and they changed and they, they made the idea better and better until it became what it is now. Um, so I, I, I think product market fit is, is not something that magically ensues. It's something you've got to iterate and get to. Um, and then, you know, if the idea is to make something that's worth talking about as a, as a marketing technique, that's step one. Step two is building in what building in and encouraging that talking. So Dropbox, which is another amazing service that allows people to share files and work collaboratively or to, you know, to save a document on your desktop and then be able to pull it up on your laptop when you go out of town two weeks later. Dropbox, 38% of its customers for, for most of its beginning came from its referral program. And they just called it like, so right now, Dropbox is free for the, the first bit of storage and then the rest of the storage you have to, if you want extra, you have to pay for it. But you can get bonus and get free storage by referring to your friends and family. It's just a standard affiliate sort of referral program. But theirs is so simple and basic that it drove millions and millions of users in through Dropbox. Which is... Well, and it's built right in because in order to download the file, yeah, exactly. People are, oh, let me put it in the Dropbox. That's interesting. Right, right. And it's just a great idea that people really need it. So, like, that's step one. And step two is, hey, if I refer my friend, I get 250 megabytes of free storage. Hey, if I if I follow Dropbox on Twitter, I get 100 megabytes. Hey, if I take this tour that teaches me how to be a really great Dropbox user and, and makes it so I'm super fluent and literate in the software, I get an extra 100 megabytes. If I follow you on Facebook, I get more. You know, the more you do with Dropbox, the more they want to reward you for being an awesome customer. Gamification. Totally. Well, yeah, let's, you just yeah. mentioned the term gamification. Uh, uh, let's hear your thoughts on gamification, Ryan. Should I point out a couple of examples of things that you see that are just brilliant? Well, I, I think, I think at, at the core, gamification is about making, sharing, and participating in a product less onerous. And right now, mm-hmm. I think you see a lot of big companies that don't capture growth and don't grow as quickly because it's it's hard to participate and it's hard to do those things. Um, so, like, look, gamification isn't something that that I talk a ton about in growth hacker marketing. But I think I think it's something that didn't exist as a marketing thing, you know, five or ten years ago because it wasn't technologically possible. Um, and so we're seeing these advancements and we're seeing the definition of marketing expand because of it. Um, and and so, like, look, if you're launching a movie, you know, ten years ago it was you know, throw a premiere party, buy a lot of ads, you know, cast a celebrity, you know, do the celebrity gossip thing, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, then today you're, you're, you're able to create this whole universe that the customers can participate in. They get drawn into it. it, There's just so many more opportunities to do awesome stuff. And I really think if you're not paying attention and you're not trying them out, you're missing out. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. let me ask you. Let me ask you this: Is there is there a way to make something "quote unquote" go viral? And like, what are the elements that need to be in place? Uh, if you can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the that's problem. a favorite people, thing. Yeah, that's somebody's marketing strategy. Yeah, we're, we're going to create a viral. No, no. Well, I like yeah, about how he talks about thing, even yeah. the term "go viral" and growth hacking. I know. No, it's funny. Yeah. So uh, that's and why look, I say "quote unquote." So I, I like that we talk about that. 
yeah, every marketer has been in one of those terrible meetings where someone's like, hey, what we want you to do is just make this go viral. And you, I just, I, I remember sitting there and thinking, like, this thing's a piece of shit. Why would it go viral? You know? Um, and it's not going to, there's, I'm not a magician. I can't make an unviral thing go viral. Um, what, what can go viral is, is something that, that has those elements baked into it. And if you do it right, you, uh, you drastically increase the efficiency of uh, the efficacy of whatever you're doing. So, you know, a great example of a, of a sort of a viral concept is like, if the product is only being used privately and people can't see it, it's not going to be very viral. So like, I like the idea of Apple deciding to use white headphones on all their products. So that mm-hmm. way everyone knew you were listening to an iPod or an iPhone or whatever. That, that seemed like a simple decision. It was, it, maybe they weren't even thinking about it at the time, but it made a huge difference because it made everyone who bought an Apple product, it made their first customers walking billboards for those products. Or another great example, next time you buy an Apple product, check the box. There's always a couple stickers that they give you for, like, why do they do that? So they'll stick them on things and give them free advertising. Um, like Mm -hmm. virality is about doing something different that makes people talk and then building in those tools that encourage that talking. It's not, Hey, let's make a funny video, put it on YouTube and then hope it gets millions of views. You know, that's hope. (laughs) That's not a strategy. Um, and, and, you know, there's actually a bunch of fascinating studies. Uh, there's one done by Jonah Berger who wrote the book, uh, contagious, um, where he was looking at, what articles make the most emailed list on the New York Times. And it turns out that the number one predictor is the extremeness of emotion that the article generates. So an article that makes people really, really happy is going to do better than an article that makes people, you know, kind of upset or an article that makes people, or conversely, it turns out articles that make people sad don't get a lot of spreading or sharing because like who wants to pass on a sad, boring article. Right. Um, and so I I think if I remember correctly from the study, the number one most high valence emotion is anger. So like things that make people pissed off or provoke a reaction are very, very viral. And, but it's like they're banging the send key. They're banging the send key when they're forwarding it to somebody. Look at this. This pisses me off. I'm going to tell everyone I know about it is the reaction, I think. Um, But, you know, it's all sorts of emotions. Like we've seen with Upworthy.com, which sort of dominates Facebook these days. They've specialized in these sort of uplifting, gooey, emotional, uh, manipulative, I would say, articles. But they, they do tens of millions, if not billions of page views. Because they know how to exploit people's emotions. Well, let, let's let's talk about that. Because in in trust me, I'm lying. You know, it's a, you know, confessions of a media manipulator. And my take from that book, well, there's many takeaways, but just the exposing of what the entire media world, in your perspective, and your experience, and the sheer amount of you know complete manipulation and bullshit that is taking place on you know just everywhere of what people are consuming is quote unquote news. And you, you have this, um, I can't even remember the report, like a guy that owned a newspaper from many years ago that said that the purpose of the news is not designed to inform. It's designed to startle. I think that's what you said. Yeah. And yeah. so uh-huh. well, first off, 
let's give a background on Trust Me, I'm Lying, what, why you wrote the book. Uh, it's kind of an expose in a lot of ways uh, of even yourself, of, you know, kind of like confessions of a media yeah. manipulator. That's what you say in the title of the book. Uh, but it's a freaking awesome book, and it's so insightful. And, you know, some people, you know, may not even like you for writing that that type of book. Uh, but it, I found it very fascinating and very, you know, very informative. Um, and I just think anyone that is in business uh, or any human being that really wants to get an insider's perspective of what the hell's going on needs to read that book. Uh, so, so why, why'd you write the book? What's it about? And then I'll ask you some questions uh, specific to things. Yeah. I, so I wanted it to be an expose of sort of what happens behind the curtain or how your sausage gets made or whatever expression you wanted to use. I felt like because of my experiences in marketing, because of my experience as a, as a media buyer, so interacting with the media, uh, with publicity and with representing controversial clients, I really sort of saw how the media really operates. And it's funny because, you know, marketers get the rep, marketers and publicists get the reputation of sort of manipulating the media or trying to trick us into thinking things. And, and what I saw was actually kind of the opposite. It's that marketers are fairly straightforward about what they do. It's like, look, I represent or I own this product and I'm trying to get people to find out about it, right? But it's the media, it's the reporters now who have the real agenda, uh, who are operating to try to capture the public's attention to get them to do this or to do that uh, because they benefit from it the most. Um, and so, you know, we live in a media world where today the page view is the metric on which everyone is judged. It's not whether they report the truth it's not whether they're good writers. It's not whether they're good reporters. It's whether their article gets lots of traffic online. And that, in a lot of ways, is in direct conflict with, you know, objective, reasoned journalism that we've come to feel as a society is important. And so I wanted to show people, yes, what I, as a marketer, have done and how reporters don't really care and how reporters do worse stuff on a daily basis to get your eyeballs so they can sell those eyeballs to advertisers. And so the, the book is, is an expose on all sides about how the media that you consume and make decisions on in terms of what you buy, what you invest in, who you support politically, is motivated and driven by this desire to, to get your attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, uh, you know, you, you say in the book, uh, the main focus is on, it's on, you know, it's on the media. And if you have to summarize it to one yeah. big idea, what is the, the one biggest idea about the, the, the media today? I mean, do you, how do you interact with, with the media? I mean, you, 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 you've seen behind the curtain, um, you know, how's a guy like mm -hmm. you get informed of, of the truth or, or is your perspective just skewed because you've seen so much utter and complete horseshit? Oh yeah. I'm a, I'm a total skeptic now and it's really hard to convince me of anything just because I've seen, you know, sort of the, the flagrant disregard for like fact and truth, uh, you know, in, in these media outlets and I've, I've participated. It's hard for me if I can send a fake email to Gawker and get my clients in the press on, on the basis of this anonymous tip, you know, in 10 minutes, it's really hard for me the next day to, to read about a story that that, that that outlet broke and that everyone assumes is real. So it's like, it's sort of, it's like once you see that the emperor has no clothes, it's really hard to take it seriously. I guess what I want people to understand is like, look, 
we don't pay for the media anymore, right? Most of it's free. Mm -hmm. Like, it's free and it's advertising supported, which means the advertisers are the customers and you're the, you're what's being sold. So the New York Times online is just the same as the Huffington Post. It's just the same as Gawker. It's just the same as Business Insider. The idea is we want to say something that will get your attention. And then to go to that sort of virality we were talking about earlier, we want to get something that's going to get your attention. We, we want to make something that you're going to post on Twitter and Facebook um, that's going to get us more views. And we're going to sell those views to advertisers in the form of, of pay-per-click and pay-per-CPM uh, advertisements. And if what we're saying happens to be true, that's an extra bonus, but is not in any way required because it's not like you're going to ask for your money back uh, because you didn't give us any. So I, I really want to sink in how in, how in some ways evil and manipulative the media can be. And, you know, I, I wrote the book from, from both perspectives. Like, one, I think it's bad culturally, but two, as a marketer or a publicist uh, or an advertiser, this presents so many opportunities to take advantage of it. And, and you know, the book and a lot of my career has been about using that environment to get lots of press and attention and, and ultimately sell millions and millions of dollars worth of products for my for my clients. So it's it's not like it's, hey, the world is ending. I'm just saying, hey, you can't trust what you read. And as a marketer, you know, you got to be aware that this is how the game's being played. Well, well, yeah, like in the book, you you uh, you talk about nine tactics to manipulating and controlling media. Uh, can you give an overview of of so, some of those nine tactics? Yeah, so I like what I talk about. Uh, I think a big one. I think the most sort of actionable is like, look, um, if in in the old days, take a paper like the New York Times, right? They can only print so many articles in the newspaper each day, right? So. And they don't make any more money if the paper's any bigger because that's not how ads are sold, right? So there's a finite amount of slots in the newspaper each day, and you and all these other outlets are competing for that spot. So it's a, it's a buyer's market. The reporter gets to decide who makes it in, in the press or not. Well, today it's the opposite, right? The Huffington Post can publish an infinite amount of articles, and each reporter gets paid by how many articles they produce on a daily basis. So if you come to a reporter at the Huffington Post or a business insider and you deliver them an amazing concept for an article, even if it's to a total puff piece that benefits you, uh, you're doing them a favor because by publishing it, they're making more money. And so I want people to, to understand that the media has transitioned from a, from a buyer's market to a seller's market. And so as a brand or as a publicist or a marketer who's doing interesting things, you're in the driver's seat and you can essentially bribe journalists and media reporters by doing interesting things and handing them these stories. You can basically do their job for you and they're not going to care because that's how they pay the rent. And so I, I sort of talk like, about these. That's kind of like Amazon getting featured on 60 Minutes the Sunday night before Cyber Monday about totally. their 30-minute delivery, which isn't even real. Right. It wasn't real. It was a total marketing stunt. But 60 Minutes is perfectly fine to participate in that marketing stunt. Absolutely, yeah. Because they got millions of views out of it, whereas in the old days, I don't want to say there was some golden age, 
the idea should be that 60 Minutes should be investigating and exposing publicity The gold stunts, standard, yes. Right, rather than enabling and encouraging them for their own gain. <laughs> it's amazing. So, well, I mean, hell, continue on, Ryan. This is very, this is very uh, useful. So, yeah, so look, so the, the book is about revealing those tactics and, and showing how they work. Um, and, and, like, I want you to know that, like, um, it, it, it's also a cautionary tale in the sense that, like, look, you've got to understand that now a reporter isn't obligated to produce the truth. So if one of your competitors decides that they want to leak a salacious allegation about you, a reporter might be happy to play along because they know that's going to be good for business. So, like, I have one of the examples in the book. Facebook hired a covert PR firm to leak bad stories and mount a campaign about privacy against Google as a way of distracting from Facebook's uh, Facebook's privacy issues. And so that's that should be pretty shocking. And the, and like they got this campaign got featured everywhere from the Huffington Post to an editorial in the Washington Post. Um, and so it's like it's not just that you can take advantage of it. It's that you've got to be on guard because this is a system that really doesn't play by any rules other than self-interest. And so as a marketer, that's something that I, I really wanted people to be aware of because I've seen too many clients get blindsided, whether it's by, you know, a, a bogus lawsuit that is settled because, you know, someone doesn't want the media attention, whether it's a disgruntled employee who gets to make you look bad or it's a competitor who gets to, you know, sort of control your Wikipedia page because you were too busy thinking that, you know, Wikipedia is is controlled by people who actually care. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's that's interesting. Now, you know, in in the other thing too, I think about the the book is it will give you a perspective that you're just never going to get anywhere else. I mean, even the stuff that you write about, like if someone starts attacking some of your clients and or you, you're, you're getting attacked, and how people think the right way to respond to something is versus what just exasperates, uh, you know, problems. Yeah, t- totally. I, I think you know. What will happen is someone will get accused of something and then you go and you run a statement by your lawyer and it takes him two days to get to respond and then you, you issue this bland, boring announcement and then, hey, it's too late. Nobody, like, th- you're already, you know, a, a child molester or whatever they decided to accuse you of and you can't ever undo that because the media cycle operates so quickly and so unscrupulously that you can really be labeled permanently forever um, off really bogus accusations very quickly. Um, and conversely, you know, you could get a reputation as an awesome saint, uh, totally unwarranted, if you're strategic about the information and the perception that you, you know, you present to the public. And so I really just want people to understand that, hey, your old assumptions about how the media works, what you feel like the rules are, those don't apply. There's a new game, and you've got to. You be. I'm not saying you have to play it yourself, but you better understand how it works, or you are going to either fall painfully behind or rudely awaken one day uh, with with you know a, a a very unfortunate situation. 
Yeah, you know, I kind I've kind of linked the the book sort of like a just like a great book along the lines of uh you know, completely different topic, but our friend Neil Strauss, you know, he's written many fantastic mm-hmm. books and Yeah. We, you know, we recently, you know, had him uh, as a guest on I Love Marketing and I've known Neil for quite a while and you know, Dean and Neil are good friends and you know, he's just a great writer and he he wrote the the, the game Penetrating the Secret Society of Pickup uh-huh. Artists. And you know, it kind of starts out about this whole, you know, I didn't know how to beat women how to, you know, it, and he kind of goes through this whole period where he actually learned it and got really into the game. And then it sort of ends about, you know, saying, wow, you know, I mean, he, he becomes kind of like a changed person throughout, but he tells yeah. the whole story of how the game is real and, and, you know, how it works. And, you know, I, I kind of link in, you, trust me, I'm lying the same way. I mean, you, you kind of become, you tell the story of what you were doing, how you were doing it, um, techniques that are used, things like that. And then you, you, you become soured to a lot of, you really find out what the hell's going on. And, and then you start cautioning and warning people, uh, you know, about how to interact with it and, um, and, and how to think about it and how to utilize it and use it if you want. And it's, it's just, uh, but I, I really left that book feeling not only a hell of a lot more educated and very strategic, but, you know, I mean, I think you're doing a, a, a real service by writing a book like that because frankly, most people don't have the balls to do it. And it's, uh, I think it's just a really kick-ass book. So, uh, anything else you want to say about Trust Me, I'm Lying? Cause I want to kind of go back and ask you, uh, to, to, to kind of talk a couple more marketing things. No, no, I, I think that's it. I think, you know, like anything, you sort of, you get drawn into a world and at first you're, you're sort of captivated by it and you want to figure it out. And, you, you know, you start going down this, this path and then maybe one day you're like, man, what am I doing? Is this, is this how things should be? And I, I wanted to help other people figure that out before they went as far down it as I did. And I think that's what Neil was doing with his book. And, and yeah, Neil's amazing. He actually gave me a bunch of great advice when I was working on Trust Me Online. Yeah, yeah. He, and he, he, you know, one thing I got to mention on this too. I don't even know if you know know him, but there's uh, one of uh, one of the top copywriters in the world is Perrin, Paris Lantropolis. He's like got a really long last okay. name. He's written some, you know, huge direct mail campaigns um, and, and direct marketing campaigns that have been, you know, I mean, read and viewed by you know, just by billions of people. And he's been writing for Boardroom Inc. for many years. And he's in my 25K group with Brian Kurtz, who also, you know, runs Boardroom Inc. and, you know, publishers Bottom Line Personal. And at the most recent meeting that he was at here at my office, uh, he told everyone in the room, and, and this is a guy who's a world-class writer, he's like... If you want to understand the media, you got to read Trust Me, I'm Lying. He's like, it is a great book. Wow. Yeah, so uh, I, I almost want to, I just want to say it cool. because people that are direct marketers that know Paris, uh-huh. I mean, that's a huge endorsement of your book because this is a guy who's just one of the greatest writers in the world. And so, yeah, there you go. Um, wow. And, well, thank yeah, you. And, well, I want to ask you, like, me and Dean have a bunch of small business owners that listen to I Love Marketing and all kinds of different varieties from brick and mortar to, you know, information marketers to designers to, uh, you know, restaurants to, you know, real estate agents and carpet cleaners and you, you name it. Um, you know, we have a few that run gigantic companies, uh, fit, a lot of fitness people, but, you know, for a carpet cleaner, as an example, um, if, if you were to sit down with someone and they're like, I need more business, Ryan, uh, what do you recommend I do? Right. You know, and you only had a few minutes to, to say anything to him. What would you, other than, you know, read your book, uh, what, what would you say to someone? What sort of advice would you give a small business owner looking to just, you know, get exposure, get business grow, you know? Sure. 
Well, you know what's interesting? I wonder if you guys agree with me on this. I find it really hard to give hypothetical marketing advice. Like when someone's like, hey, what would you say to that? It's like, you know, I wouldn't say anything because I try to I try to give actionable stuff that actually would work for that specific person. But you, you, know, you yep. get what I'm saying. So anyway. Like well, I, well, no, no, I mean, let me, let me uh, also speak to that. Like I think that's one of the reasons me and Dean – became such niche marketers and our very first profit activator and the eight profit activators that people download on our website, mm-hmm. I love marketing.com, which doesn't even sell anything is select a single target market. I mean, so we're, we're very much about niching and being specific and giving people, well, in this particular case, this is what you do. So yeah, totally. uh, the only reason I'm asking you that is because that's what me and Dean constantly get asked. Right. So we, we always like asking some of our guests, well, what the hell would you say to people? Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, 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 this is something I've been thinking about too, because like, look, it's like, how do you market more? How do you market the more boring stuff out there? Um, how do you, if it's like, Hey, I'm in, I'm in the carpet business or I'm in, I'm in the construction business or I, you know, I'm not, I'm not like one of my clients, he does books about drinking and hooking up. So it's like, he's not, that that's a, that's fairly easy to get controversial media attention for because it's inherently controversial, but right. I, I, so I guess first I would I would also push back on the idea that like boring stuff has to stay boring. You know, GoDaddy is a great example of a company that's about as boring as you can get from a business perspective. It's a domain name registry, but it's a brand that we all know about and we've all talked about and we've all seen, even if we've not used it, because they're really good at creating compelling spectacles that get people's attention. But the first thing to to really answer your question, the first thing that I talk to people about, or prospective clients, or anyone, is they goes, "Hey, I want more customers." And I go, "Well, like, who are your customers? Like, who are we? Who specifically do you want to reach?" And I really actually make them tell me who that person is because I think far too many people just think of like they think that they should be in the New York Times because that's where everyone is, but it's like. Why would you be on the front page of a newspaper to reach the 75 potential customers in your local area that you actually need? Like, that seems terribly inefficient to me to go to the biggest media outlet in the country and so you can reach 17 people that are within a (laughs) 15-minute drive from your house. You know, that seems... That seems like you're needlessly going through a middleman. So I really try to push people and figure out who your customers are. And then I say, you know, what is the most interesting thing about what you do? And how can we come up with something, whether it's PR, whether it's advertising, whether it's a campaign, whether it's direct response, something that that can reach those people and communicate that fact. And I think that's that's the core of marketing, right? Like, you have something special. There are prospective people out there who would be interested. How can you communicate that fact? And let's be totally agnostic in terms of what it is that we use to get there, provided it's the best way to do it in this specific case. Yep. Love it. Love it. Very good advice. So, uh, Dean, uh, anything else you want to add or say or uh, ask? Ryan? I love it. I can't believe it's already the, it's already an hour. That's amazing. Yeah, wow. Well, it almost is. I think we've got maybe another minute and a half or whatever, but uh, yeah. I, you know, I usually do all the yakking when we have guests and stuff. And well, I know. Dean well, since it doesn't look like you're going to ask me, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to ask him, do you think that you could take Dove in a fist fight? Do I think I could take Dove Charney in a fist fight? Yeah. Uh, that's a controversial question. I like it. Uh, it Dove, is. 
Dove has has maybe the most uh, energy I've ever seen in a human being. Like he doesn't <laughs> sleep at all. So on the one hand, he's got that going for him, but Dove doesn't do any exercise of any kind. Uh, <laughs> so I, I I think that I I might have I might have him there. But he is not someone I would ever want to fight. Actually, he is one of uh, he's he's been a he's been a great mentor to me. He's taught me so much and. You know what? It's funny. Despite his very controversial reputation, he built the largest garment manufacturing business in the United States that pays workers between thirteen and eighteen dollars an hour. When the going wage for for uh, garment workers internationally is like fifteen cents or twenty five cents, so it's funny. He's got this reputation of being this like villain, and he's actually, I think, one of the sweetest, nicest good people I've ever met in my life. But I guess mm-hmm. that goes, that's part of why I wrote Trust Me, I'm Lying, is, is I knew this man, and then I knew what his media reputation was, and they are at direct opposite ends of the spectrum, and I felt like that really wasn't fair, and that that shouldn't keep happening. No, no mm-hmm. and that's, and, and you really do give a real good insight and perspective about, you know, just, you know, how wrong the, the media uh, can get or represent things for their own, you know, their own purposes. Uh, if you were to be a yep. referee in a fist fight between uh, Tucker Max and Tim Ferriss, who would you hope would win? That is a tough one because they both do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and mixed martial oh. arts. Uh, they are both extremely strong, and I don't know. I w- Tucker is bigger, like in terms of height, and stronger than Tim. Uh, but Tim has an inhuman strength quality to him. So I don't want to pick sides, but that would be a good fight. That is for sure. <laughs> no, and I bring that up because you, no commitment. you've we're, been very... I'm trying to get... Can you see what we're doing here? We're trying to get yeah. you to commit to something that we can get on the front page of Gawker. Of course. That Ryan Holiday says he could take Dove in a fist fight. Mm-hmm. Now, well, and you've, you've been really instrumental in helping book authors and stuff with their marketing <laughs> campaigns. And so if there's anyone listening that, that is an author, um, you, you gotta read both of Ryan's books. But yeah, that, that's it. And so, you know, Ryan, it's, it's great chatting with you. This is, uh, really useful. You, uh, I, I, I just, uh, love the fact at such a young age, you've just really cranked out some awesome shit. And what, what is your blog? If people want to read your blog, where do they go? Yeah, it's ryanholiday.net. Um, uh, you know, I'm at Twitter at twitter.com slash Ryan holiday. And I actually, uh, on my site, if people care, I, I, I'm a huge reader. I like, I love books. And so I do a weekly or a monthly email where I recommend, you know, like five or 10 amazing books and you can get that on my site. As well. Oh, and one last thing, since you're on, I love marketing. Why do you love marketing? Yeah. I mean, you gravitated towards this subject. What, 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 what does it do for you? Why do you, why do you get into it? Why do you like it? Yeah, I love taking things that I personally love and thinking and think are awesome and making more people know about them. I think that's what marketing is and and that's what I I get to pick the clients that I work with and I take an immense amount of pleasure out of popularizing things that I'm personally a fan yeah, of. Yeah, awesome. Me too. Me too. And I cool. think that in, in one of our goals and objectives with I Love Marketing, for lack of a better word, we said, you know, we got to really rebrand uh, what, what how people think about marketing, how people utilize it, how they interact with it. And that's the whole purpose of I Love Marketing and why we have a boatload of people that uh, listen to it and subscribe. So uh, thank you, Ryan. Um, to all of our listeners, um, let us know what you thought of this uh, episode. Uh, go to ilovemarketing.com and post your comments. Share it with anyone that you think needs to hear it. Read Ryan's books and let us know what you thought about the recommendations. 
and uh, we will keep you posted of any uh, shenanigans or happenings that you need to be aware of related to Ryan and uh, everything else in uh, the world of real marketing that works. So uh, thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me.